0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So God willing, today we're going to be starting a new book. We're going to study uh, the book of Nehemiah. Um, it's uh, it's one of the easier books in the Old Testament um, to understand. It's uh, like a story that we can read and understand. There's not a lot of prophecies or anything difficult in it. Um, but it's also a very inspiring book. And We see the character of Nehemiah and all the things we can learn from him. So um, let's start by speaking about some of the historical background So we can kind of like be aware of where we are historically. So um, in the year 586 BC, um, Jerusalem fell. There was actually three captivities, three um, uh, exiles that culminated in the final one uh, uh, in the year 586 BC. Um, And this was to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. This was because of the sins of the people. We had read about this actually when we studied the books of the kings. Um, and by the end of 2 Kings, which was the last Old Testament book that we had studied, um, the southern kingdom of Judah had been carried away to captivity to Babylon um, under King Nebuchadnezzar. And we can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 24. It says, um, speaking about Nebuchadnezzar, Also, he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains, and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained except the poorest of the land, and he carried Joachim captive to Babylon, the king's mother and king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land. He carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon, all the valiant men, 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths, 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war. These, the king of Babylon, brought captive to Babylon. Okay, so this was one of the very last things we studied in Second Kings. So Nehemiah is a nice kind of continuation to think to, to, to what is happening in during in during the time of captivity, if you remember when we were studying the books of the kings, we had talked about the different strategies that the Assyrians had when they took the northern kingdom captive versus when Babylon took the southern kingdom captive. do you remember what their different strategies were
1: yeah the Assyrians would uh, would bring people f- to replace the people that they have taken captive and they would mingle with like the people who are already in the land to kind of assert their presence or to change the culture of the land that they've taken,
0: good yeah. that was the Assyrians, and what is it that the Babylonians would do?
1: They would like leave it um, they would take who is it is is that is they that
0: would take, the and who is it that they would leave the behind. Ba- yeah.
1: Yeah, they would take the smart people. The 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 smart people, people. (laughs) the ones with high IQ. (laughs) Like Daniel and and the three young men. Yeah,
0: so they would take like the mightiest, the best, the most unique people, and they would leave behind the poorest people, like the people with the least resources, okay? And this kind of almost guaranteed that there would be no uprising um, among the people that were there. And this Mm -hmm. is actually why, you know, when you think about like Nehemiah, of course, we know Nehemiah is famous for being the one who – Rebuilt you know led the the effort to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Why is it that he you know th- It needed somebody who was already living in captivity to come back to Israel to do this It was because the people who were living there, you know were not we're not the ones with the most capable resources or the ability to do such a thing Okay, so 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 just keep that in mind and we read this here in chapter 24 all of the Smiths, all of the strongest people, everyone who was talented in whatever way, was taken. Okay, um, so th- so that was in the year 586 BC. Okay, uh, about 50 years later, in the year 539 BC. Okay, um, the Persians defeated the Babylonians. Okay, the Persians defeated the Babylonians, and we, we, we see this actually in the Book of Daniel because Daniel, of course, was one of the other prominent people who was taken uh, in this uh, captivity. Of course, Nehemiah was actually born in captivity, but Daniel was taken uh, in captivity uh, from, from from Jerusalem, and you can see in during the course of the book of Daniel how um, there was a change in the government, right, because the Persians conquered uh, the Babylonians. So the king of Persia, um, he was actually uh his name was king cyrus and he was prophesied about in the book of isaiah though it was much earlier before even cyrus was born it was prophesied about him that he was going to be the one who was going to allow the people to return to captivity so he was prophesied about even before the captivity happened right and he was named by name that this is the one who is going to to do this so this king um cyrus he was encouraging the jews to return to their homeland and so the return happened in three phases, okay? The return happened in three phases. The very first batch, the very first group of people that went, um, they they were tasked to uh, lay the foundation of the temple, right? They didn't complete completely the temple, but they laid the foundation of the temple and this was about 50,000 people that returned, okay? Um, and this was under Zerubbabel or Zerubbabel, however you're gonna pronounce the name, um, uh, to be the leader, the one who returned with the people the first time Um, after about 16 years um, after this return um, the people their focus was when they returned their focus was all on let me build my own house right so so the people that came they they were not necessarily um, immediately starting into the idea of let's rebuild the temple but each one of them was more interested on, let me make sure that my own house is in order, let me have a place for myself to live, and so on. And you can understand that, you know, you're moving to a completely different place, um, and you want to make sure that your house is in order, right? But they neglected the temple. And so when Haggai and Zechariah, they were two of the prophets that were sent, they rebuked the people for doing this and said, you're leaving the house of God like in shambles when all you're focusing on um, is is your own houses. Okay then the second batch of jews in 458 bc okay they um returned to jerusalem under the leadership of ezra and his focus was like the spiritual reform right the spiritual reform the people um to 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 warn the people against intermarrying with the gentiles even though sadly we see that they did it again and you know one of the Uh, the main reasons why the exile happened to begin with was because the people intermarried with the Gentiles and they brought idol worship to Israel, right? But now that, um, you know, that they were returning, the hope would be that they've learned their lesson, that they're not going to fall into the same traps again, the same problems again, um, and they're not going to, you know, intermarry with the Gentiles. unfortunately was happening. But Ezra was the one who led them um, back the second time. Uh, This was in the year 516 BC. Then sorry, this was in the year 458 BC, 458 BC. Um, That's the second wave um, returning. Uh, Then uh, the third wave was for primarily the rebuilding of the wall, okay? And this is what we're going to read about in this book, Nehemiah, the completing of the wall. It took 52 days to rebuild the entire wall, right? If you can imagine how big an effort it would be you know, like, there's an intersection by my house. It's been two and a half years, and they're not done. Um, so they rebuilt the entire wall of Jerusalem in 52 days. Um, so they And they had opposition, right? Like, at one point, you know, Nehemiah told the people, like, have a tool for building in one hand and have a sword in the other hand. So you can imagine, like, how difficult it was for them um, to, to build that way. But despite that and through the grace of God working with them, they were able to build the wall in 52 days. Primarily the people who were against them were the Moabites, uh, the Ammonites, the Assyrians. Um, remember, now the Assyrians uh, had had conquered the northern kingdom and Samaria. Right? They had b- prior to the Babylonian exile, um, and also there were Arabs um, and and the Samaritans that were there. They were all against the rebuilding of the wall. Um, the Nehemiah also he confronted the people who were like the opponents of God, um, and and you know after. 142 years um, after the desolation, and the year 586, the wall was finally complete. So, so um, he 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 had such a big impact on um, the returning and the reestablishment of the worship of Jehovah God in Israel. The author of the book, so according to the Jewish tradition, um, the four books, which is First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, in Hebrew, they used to all be one book. And uh, they were written by Ezra, according to the Jewish tradition. However, because a lot of the book was written in the first person, so when you read in the Book of Nehemiah, it's using the first person saying "I" um, about Nehemiah. So some people believe that it was written by Nehemiah, or maybe a collaboration between Nehemiah and Ezra. So Ezra would write parts, and Nehemiah would write parts. Who was Nehemiah? Uh, so first, he was a he was a layman. He he was not a scribe. He was not a priest or a prophet he was he was a layman and as i said he was born in captivity so he was not alive at the time of the exile but he was born in captivity which is also very remarkable um how he has such a zeal for um you know for the temple and for jerusalem um even though he had never lived there he had never seen how things were before right um before the exile um and he's and and not only that but he has a very cushy life Right, so he is the cupbearer of the king. Um, the king at that time, king of Persia, is Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the son of. Do you know? Huh? Not Cyrus. It's another king, famous king that we read about in the Old Testament. Another story. Hmm? Who? What? <laughs> It sound, the name sounds like Artaxerxes. Very similar to Artaxerxes. Some people would think it's the same person, maybe. His name was Xerxes. <laughs> okay? Who was Xerxes? He was the husband of a very famous queen. Huh? Esther. You know the story of Esther, right? So Esther was married to... Xerxes, the son of Xerxes, is Artaxerxes. Okay, so there is actually a very close relationship time wise, chronologically, between the time, the story of Esther, okay, which happened before this, and this story now that we're reading about Nehemiah. Yes. No. No, so he's not, he's the son of Xerxes, but not the son of Esther. Yeah. Because the kings would have multiple wives. Yeah. Um, but actually, yeah, 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 that's right. Um. So, wait, 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 what, no. Uh, Nehemiah is not the son of Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is the cupbearer of Artaxerxes. Right, Nehemiah is not related to Artaxerxes. Nehemiah works for him, right? He is the cupbearer. But Artaxerxes is the son of Xerxes, who is the husband of Esther. Yes. No, Xerxes. Hmm? What does it say? In in Esther. I I cuz when I read about this this is what it was saying but I will look it up again. Yeah. Um so w- who was the cupbearer? The cupbearer was actually a very prominent position, had to be someone who was very well trusted. Um because the the cupbearer's job was essentially to taste all of the food and drink that the king was going to consume before he eats it so that it can you know you can make sure that um it was safe. So if anyone's trying to poison the king, um, Nehemiah would be the first one to die, right? <laughs> so the king doesn't die. Um, and again, in, in the Persian era this was like a very prominent position because it had to be someone who was very well trusted. Um, most of the time uh, the, the position of the cupbearer was a eunuch, um, although there's no mention um, of that for Nehemiah. Um, but the idea was is that he had a very comfortable job. He had a very comfortable position. So it's not like he's saying that he wants to return or go back to Jerusalem because of his you know misery because of you know he doesn't have any opportunity no he was actually leaving behind a very comfortable life in order to go and have a very difficult life um, so it says something about like his passion and desire um, for um, the city of God in Jerusalem, and again, he had never been there before um, because he was not born there um, so he you know when you know the story as the story goes and we read this so he when he finds out that the walls of jerusalem are um, are in shambles so he's upset and he fasts and prays and he asks god to give him favor on the side of the king who then allows him to go and to um, return so again and and he actually goes and becomes a governor right so kind of under so so it's the, the, the 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 at this point israel is like a province of the persian empire And Nehemiah becomes, like, the governor of that place. So it's still under Persia, but he becomes the governor of that place. And, of course, the king treats Israel, you know, very well. Um, So um, kind of the relationship between Ezra and Nehemiah in terms of their role. So, again, Ezra's focus was more on, like, the spiritual reform, whereas Nehemiah's role was more on, like, the political reform like like reforming the wall was to allow Jerusalem to be kind of an independent nation again and allow them to be protected from their enemies uh, to to you know be able to worship the way um, that they want um, the capital of Persia at this time it's called Shushan or Susa it was the other another name for it um, and 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 actually we we when nehemiah first goes back to jerusalem he spends his time there and rebuilding and then he goes back to uh to to shushan or susa and in persia and then after some time he comes back to kind of revisit and we're gonna talk about both of these visits um here in the in the book um and um and it'll become more clear okay any questions about the background so far So chapter one, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel. So Chislev, the month of Chislev, is the month corresponding to November, December, okay? Um, and, and as I said, um, Shushan was the capital, uh, a very important city in the, in the southwest part of Persia. It's in modern day Iran. So you can see in the map here, the, the path that Nehemiah would have to travel uh, in order to go from Susa and the Persian Empire down to um, Jerusalem. So it was not like a short distance. Um, then Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So at this point, like, you know, hundreds, uh, you know, a very long time had passed, you know since the captivity had happened and there had already been two phases of return so there were already other jews who had already returned before this and so nehemiah knows that there are jewish people who had been freed to go and return to jerusalem that were living there but the the status of the wall was still very bad and that's what he's going to find out here Um, interesting fact is that if you'll notice maybe i mean i actually never noticed this but The term Jew was never used prior to this, right? So the people were always called the Hebrews or the Israelites. They were never called Jewish, okay? Um, The word Jew means member of the tribe of Judah, okay? Or member of the kingdom of Judah. That's what the word Jew means. Prior to this, they were called Israelites. Um, But now at this point, all of the other tribes had gone into captivity and they were all kind of exiled into the Assyrians. And the only people, the only Jewish people that were really left that could be identified um that hadn't like intermingled or intermixed with everyone else were these these group here they were called the Jews. So nowadays the word Jew is used to refer to anyone, right, of israelite descent, but it technically is referring to those people from the tribe of Judah. So here it's using the word Jew because th- now it's after the captivity that's when this term started to be used. And they said to me the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Okay, um, so again, the the Babylonians only left the poorest of the people there, and though there had been people who returned, but you can imagine that the people who are going to return there with very little resources, um, it's going to be very difficult for them to kind of to do anything right to to to, to 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 heal their land to to recover and rebuild their city and everything in it okay um, uh, also note that um, under the second return under Ezra, the people actually attempted to rebuild the wall. this is not the first time they tried to build the wall. Does anyone remember what happened when they tried to build the wall the first time? This is recorded in Ezra chapter four. does anyone know? blocked
1: by like they were stopped by a letter to the king of persia right right
0: the same king actually so uh, at, at that time when the, the the jews who are already gone back they tried to rebuild the wall and the people in the area they saw that this was happening they were concerned and they sent a letter to king artaxerxes the same king now who's going to let nehemiah to go back and they said to him these people are very rebellious people and if they build the wall they're going to have more military power and all this and we advise you not to allow them to rebuild and the king agreed and so they stopped they didn't build um so now um we're going to talk about this it's even more uh like even more uh, important that the king is now going to agree because he had previously disagreed before so it was when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So again, it says something about like the, the heart of Nehemiah. He had never visited Jerusalem. He was not born in Jerusalem. He didn't have relatives in Jerusalem. He had a very comfortable life where he was living. And all he heard was some news from somebody that he didn't know, uh, telling him that the people who are living there, uh, are having a difficult time, and the walls of Jerusalem are, um, you know, are 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 crumbled, right? You know, maybe we hear about bad news all the time on the news, and and we we don't cry over it. Like we're like, oh, too bad for those people, right? Like we don't we don't necessarily empathize with every catastrophe or tragedy that happens with everyone because there's so much bad news that after a while. You you stop really paying attention to all the bad news, right? Here, um, Nehemiah didn't just think, well, too bad for them. You know, like, I'm here, cupbearer of the king. Uh, I'm fine here, and, you know, I'm sure God is going to fix their problem somehow, or God is going to send them somebody, or somebody who's living there. Actually, like, again, when you think about it, the one who most logically would be the one responsible for leading such an endeavor to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem would be somebody in Jerusalem, you know, like, why would it take somebody who's thousands of miles away uh, to, to go? Like, he wouldn't even feel like, I don't even have the opportunity to go. Like, even if he felt convicted, like, he could have very easily said, well, I have my job here. I have, I'm too far away. I'm not the one who, how am I going to make any difference to go to do that? But that's not, right? He, he felt very upset about it, right? He felt very uh, upset. And um, we see now, like, what's going to happen is like the combination of like his passion and and love for the people and his devoutness to God and his intelligence and resourcef- resourcefulness as a leader. Because now we're gonna see the you know maybe an uh, an aspect of Nehemiah that wasn't really um, visible or or well known as a cupbearer. You know, as a cupbearer you're just gonna do what you're told. Here, eat this, drink this, okay. But we're gonna see now from the actions that he takes how resourceful of a leader he is. And so that combination of his passion and vision and resourcefulness and leadership is what's gonna make all of this work, right? Of course, with the grace of God working in him. So the other thing that's interesting is he didn't immediately jump to any uh, any action, right? Like sometimes when we become upset about something or we feel very strongly convicted about something, the first thing we wanna do is take an action immediately right? But he didn't, he, he, you know, obviously it's upsetting him, and it's bothering him, but he didn't take any action right away. It says that he fasted and prayed, maybe the things that would be the last on our list of the things to do whenever, like, we have a difficult problem that we want to resolve. The first things we're going to do is call the people we need to call, go to the places we need to go, like, do the research we need to do, and then finally, after I've done all of that, then the fasting and prayer is, okay, I'll do that too. But here, he's like, no, the very first thing I'm going to do, take no action at all, other than just fasting and prayer, what? Right before the God of heaven, okay? And he, and, 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 and he did that quickly, but he didn't do anything else yet. And so this is the prayer of Nehemiah. So it's a, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Okay, so his prayer is a very beautiful prayer, and it kind of touches on a lot of very important points. Okay, and it's a good, p- p- like, model for prayer. Uh, so first, he recognizes who God is. So he said about him what? He says, uh, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. right? So he's recognizing the identity of God, who he is. Okay, Then he recognized the covenant that God made. Uh, when he says here, um, you who keep your covenant and mercy with all those who love you and observe your commandments. Now this is very important because it's easy for someone who after having sinned against God to have been punished, to have been cast out to have been you know, exiled, for such a person to think there is nothing that I can do to be redeemed, there is no way that God would have mercy on us, or even maybe the the very kind of superficial faith that some people would have, thinking God doesn't hear me here, God only hears in Jerusalem. right? So Nehemiah is living in exile, he knows that his ancestors have sinned against God to where that um, everything that they had was destroyed and taken from them, and that God was angry with them, and that God punished them right? So, but the idea that even now as he is living here, that he can think to himself, no, God, you made a promise, and I believe that you can c- keep your promise, even though we have sinned against you, because we can repent, right? This is the difference between Peter and Judas, right? Like, Judas didn't believe that his repentance would be accepted, whereas Peter believed that his repentance would be accepted, even though both sinned, and both rejected Christ, but, but one believed that there was a return, the other believed there was no return. And here Nehemiah, he believes that there is return, and it's expressed in the faith that he had in his prayer, okay? That he believes that God made a covenant, and, and if we observe your commandments, if we turn back from our sinful ways and observe your commandments, then you will restore us um, again. Um, and this is the pattern, actually, that we see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was never a time when the people of God were obedient to him, and they suffered anything. You know, like, like every time there was a war, any time the enemies of Israel did something, it was always during a time where the people were disobedient. They were worshiping idols. They disobeyed against. Them. Even you think about like when they first entered into the promised land, right, uh, the first city, Jericho, they conquered it with, with ease. The second city they conquered because one man s- stole something from Jericho that he shouldn't have stolen, right, they lost the battle, right? So the connection between victory and and obedience to God is like very, very clear all throughout the Old Testament. And of course we can understand this in a spiritual way. Like whenever we are we are seeking to be obedient to God, whenever we're seeking the will of God in our life, then we'll find that things can go more smoothly in our life rather than a person who is rebelling and, and, and angry at God because he is not allowing him to do what it is that he wants and he's living a life of sin away from God. Um, then maybe his life and the outcome of his life will be very, very different and very difficult. Um, so here it's again, it's a reminding God of the covenant, right, saying that if we are obedient to you and we are repenting, if we are following your commandments, then uh, we believe that you will keep your your covenant. Um, and as I said, he believed that God still heard him, even though he was in a foreign land. Also he was persistent in his prayer because he said he prayed day and night, right. So sometimes again, we don't pray persistently because we really don't believe, right? We don't believe. We we pray once, we pray twice. It doesn't happen. Uh, I don't want to continue, right? Maybe we feel dejected or in despair or sad or disappointed, or we we, we lose faith that God is even going to do anything. What's the point even of me asking God if if nothing has happened, nothing will ever happen, right? But no, Nehemiah didn't think this way. He he he, he said, I'm going to keep praying, right? I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep asking God to reveal to me. What is the solution? How is it he's going to do this and that he would do it? And maybe from the beginning, actually, from the the very first time that Nehemiah started to pray, he didn't realize that the the solution was going to be Nehemiah himself. Like maybe he's just praying. He's saying, God rebuild the walls and fix the problem, right? At what point in this process, because it was actually ended up being like a few months that he prayed this before going to the king. At some point in this process of praying, Nehemiah realized that he was the, o- his, his, the answer. That the, the, per- the way that he was going to solve the problem, the way God was going to solve the problem was actually through him. So he, again, he didn't just look for God to do some kind of a sign or miracle or send somebody else or do something. He, he, he asked himself, like, what is it that I can do? And when he realized that he had the capability to do it, then he considered that God was working through him. Right? God was working through him. It's okay that God works through us. It's not like we just are going to sit passively and watching, and then somehow God is going to do everything, and we're going to watch it, and we're going to say, This is God's will. No, maybe God's will is going to happen through my action. Right? Um, the, another aspect of his prayer is that he considered himself to be a sinner. Right? When he says, um, uh, we we have we have not kept your commandments. We have not kept your statutes. And he said, "The sin of my father's house and my house." Like he he did not say that it's the fault of someone else, even though he was not alive. Right? Like he did not, he was not alive at the time of the captivity. So there was no way that his personal sin could in any way have affected this. But he he like attributed the sins of his ancestors to be his own. Right? This is when he says. Uh, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against you both my father's house and I have sinned well how how has has he sinned of course he's sinned in his life his sin was not the reason for the captivity but you see how he has this kind of a loyalty and and he doesn't see himself like higher than or better than anyone because maybe yes he was not personally there but he is—he knows himself, he knows that he is a sinful man, and, and, he, and he knows himself. And maybe if he was alive at the time, then yeah, his sin also would have contributed to this. So we shouldn't see ourselves as being better than anyone or thinking that the sins of another person are so horrible and that somehow we are better than them. No, like If Nehemiah can consider himself to be a sinner and affiliate himself with his family who, was, who sinned and caused all of this, then um, we also can do the same. You know, when we look at all of humanity, we can look at God to God and say, "We have sinned. Like we have, we collectively, all of us have sinned." When we talk about the sin of Adam and Eve, why is it fair that we would be punished for the sin they committed? Well, because we have sinned. Like we are all sinners. It is. It is not. It is not just someone else, right? This is. This is who we are. We're all the same. Um, also, he understood the history of his people. Okay, because he says. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, ordinances, which you have commanded your servant Moses, right? Like he knows who he is, even though he grew up in captivity, even though he had never attended Sunday school or whatever you want to call it, you know. Um, he, never, he never had the benefit of seeing the temple. He never had the par- benefit of, of offering animal sacrifices. He, he, he never had the benefit of all the things that the children that would have grown up at the time in Israel would have had but he understands who he is. Like we see actually the same example of Moses. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house and yet he knew who he was, right? So this was also very important that he didn't lose his identity or dissolve in the midst of the society that he was living. A- and, and we, of course, we, we struggle with the same thing. Like, you know, we are, do we dissolve, right? Do we s- try to dissolve? Do we see ourselves as wanting to dissolve? into the society that we're in rather than to stand apart and say, no, we are not like this. We don't accept this. We don't approve of this. We don't live like this. And, and we proclaim it proudly, right? That this is not who we are. Or are we just afraid? We're afraid of the repercussions. We're afraid of what people will say. and We try to blend in um, as much as we can. So here, he understood um, who he was. Yes.
1: Um, it seems like many people Were born in the captivity, um, like Nehemiah here, Ezra, um, Zerubbabel, like others people, other people as well. What made those people, um, like having such faith and desire to go back (coughs) to Jerusalem and build the temple again and build the wall again, like how they got this desire?
0: I mean, I can't say I know for sure, but I would say definitely their parents. I think their parents would play the biggest role in this. Because the parents are the ones that are going to tell them who they are. They're going to tell them the history. They're going to tell them where we came from. They're going to tell them we were here and God intended this for us, but we sinned against him and that's why we're here. And the better life is the one that we had before and we're mourning. Like we're living in mourning. Even as like now as Christians, you know, when we say that we are sojourners, do we live like sojourners? Like do we live like people who are mourning mourning? That we are here and would rather be somewhere else, like like to like for a Christian, right? When we say our citizenship is in heaven, it means that we long for that life, like we long to go there, and that everything here we see it as just kind of like a temporary obstacle in our way, something that we have to live through and endure in order to get back to the final destination where we want, right? Whereas whereas other other to other people maybe instead will will think no, like. This place is the place I want to be. I wanna enjoy everything there is here, whether it's sinful or not, I wanna I wanna I wanna soak it all in because this is the, the life that I want for myself. So that's the example of the people who were like in Babylon that didn't want to return. Because there were many of them, right? There were many people in Babylon that when they were given the opportunity to return, they were like, I already have my life, I already have my job, I already have my businesses, I already have my family, I already have everything. I don't wanna make this you know journey this difficult journey back to israel right and this really the same the same option that we were given now like do you want to do you want to live here or do you want to live for heaven and and the way we live d- d- will you know we decide that based on the answer to that question so i think definitely the parents had a huge part in instructing their children of who they were obviously each person makes the choice for themselves but 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 the role of the parents can't be under overstated, I think, in, in that. <coughs> Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to a place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So he is actually rem- like quoting what is it that God had said. And what is it that God had said specifically? You know, when, when Solomon dedicated the temple, um, god spoke to him about all the things right and and when like people are far away and they have been cast out and they come back to me again and they pray in this temple and i will accept them or in the book of deuteronomy prior to the israelites entering to the promised land when moses is speaking to the people and he's talking them on what they should expect in the future and the idea that they would sin against him and be exiled and all these things that were to happen so god was always had in his mind and in his plan from the beginning that he knew that this time would come, that the people would reject him, that people would um, sin against him, and they would be going to exile. And yet even then, God was providing a way a means of return. So here again, Nehemiah is reminding God of his own promises that he had made to say, what, even though that you are cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them there and bring them to a place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And he believed this very strongly. Right, he believed that this this promise, the power of God, was greater than the power of man. You know, when you think yourself like living in an oppressive kingdom, that is persecuting you. Right, you might think like there's no way for me to free myself. There's no way for me to escape, and that's why King Cyrus was a miracle. King Cyrus is king who came and for the first time allowed these uh, Jewish people to return. The man that had been prophesied about from hundreds of years before. So um, this was the means by which God allowed them. Um, to to return so he knew the word of god and he believed it and he believed that god could do the impossible even what was beyond the power of any any human being (coughs) now these are your servants and your people (coughs) whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand O lord i pray please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray and grant him mercy on the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Okay, So he still considered that all of the scattered people everywhere were the people of God. right? All the scattered people, they were still the people of God, and that they were not forsaken by him. And now he is thinking, okay, um, I he's now formulated in his own mind what he intends to do and what he wants to do and he's asking God to bless and to grant him success, which is that he wants to ask the king to allow him to undertake this task, okay? Of him being the one to go and to, um, to, to lead the effort to fix this problem. So again, he's taking responsibility, even though he is living very far away, he's not waiting for someone else to do it. Um, and because he was the cup bearer, so he had very easy access to the king on a daily basis, right? So he could communicate with the king. Okay, any questions about that chapter? Yeah.
2: Why did Nehemiah have access to the scriptures? Was it okay for them to have access to these scriptures? Was the king open to them having their Bible studies or whatever, scripture studies?
0: Yeah, the The, the Babylonians and the Persians were not, um, like they were, w- what they did is they would they would like integrate the religions of the other peoples into their own and they allowed everyone to have their own gods and their own everything and that's the thing with you know when you have like a, a society based on you know um uh, like polytheism right is you are very open to all kinds of beliefs right um so so yeah they had he had no problem with that even the kings before like Nebuchadnezzar for instance with with Daniel he wouldn't have a problem with Daniel you know, like having his own faith and whatnot. And he even adopted and said, based on what he saw from David and the lions, d- or Daniel in the lion's den, he even began to believe in this God himself. So, yeah, there was no issue with that. <coughs> okay. Chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king now I had never been sad in his presence before. So this uh, m- this is like March, April. I remember the previous month when, when he heard about the news was Chislev, which was November, December. So we're like three to four months now um, from the time that he heard the news and started fasting and praying to the time where he's actually going to take this action. Okay. Um, because he was the cup bearer, So the king would have multiple cupbearers. He wouldn't just be the one. So he would be, like, working, if you want to say, like, he would have, like, a shift. You know, like, certain times of the year or certain times of however they divided up, it would be his turn to be the cupbearer, okay? So on this day, it was his turn to be the cupbearer, okay? And the people who worked in the royal court had to appear a certain way before the king, right? So the king, obviously, is a very powerful person. You were not even allowed to be sad in front of the king. You had to be joyful. You had to be tearful, um, always in the presence of the king. So the fact that he was visibly sad in front of the king, this was the first problem. Okay. The second problem is that the cupbearer is not allowed to talk to the king, and to make requests of the king. Right. Again, it's very similar to what. Esther, right? What did uh, happen with Esther? She went to the king and he made a request. She made a request of him, right? And she said, what? This is like, I could, I could die. He could kill me if I go and make a request to the king, right? And that's why she was hesitant, right? To do it at the beginning. So here also, it was not allowed for Nehemiah to go and just speak to the king casually and make a request of him, okay? Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, and they said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire? Okay? So the king noticed that Nehemiah was sad. Okay? And again, that made Nehemiah afraid because he's not supposed to be sad in front of the king. And now he is, like, you know, going to speak. He's going to tell the king why he is sad. Um. And he did so with boldness. Now, remember that his loyalty is supposed to be to the king, to the Persians. Like, he's been granted um, a a very high position, right? But Nehemiah here, like, is speaking about another nation, which is, he, he considers it to be his own. He says, the city, the place of my father's tombs, right? Like, he's considering that to be his home and th- the place of my family, and I am, I am sad because that place is destroyed. So in some sense, Nehemiah here could be seen as like a traitor, right? Because he's like, you're saying you care more about this other nation. You care more about th- these other people that we've conquered as, a, as, you know, the Persians at the time, the Babylonians, but have conquered, and they are under our rule, right? And here you are in front of the king. And you're supposed to be serving the king joyfully and cheerfully, and you're here talking about you know this thing. So it's it's it could have been very very much like not seen in a good light that Nehemiah is saying this, um, but he's being honest. Then the king said to me, "What do you request?" So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, "If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it." So the king. Like having seen the reaction, so actually um, the, the the request that Nehemiah made was based on the question he was asked. So it, it started that he was sad, and the king noticed that he was sad and he asked him, Why are you sad? So he told him. Then the king said, Okay, what can I do? Right. You see, like the kind of respect that the king had for Nehemiah for him to tell him what what do you want? And so then, the Nehemiah was bold, and he said, uh, "I want to go back again, and I want to be the one responsible for rebuilding, um, rebuilding the city." Okay, and and it says before Nehemiah spoke, he says, "What? So I pray to the God of heaven." Now he just had four months of praying about this, right? But here in this moment, like right, right before he even was about to speak, he says like this very quick prayer to himself. Like, we call this the arrow prayer. Like, when we say the Jesus prayer, right, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? This is an arrow prayer because it's like a very short and brief prayer that we can pray at any time asking for God's help in something that's, you know, could be imminent, could be something I'm about to say, something that's about to happen. Okay? And this was also a very big request. Like, you're saying you want to leave my side as the cupbearer in order to go to some far-off nation thousands of miles away So you can rebuild a city that you and have more allegiance in than you have with me. Again, like the king could take it in a way to make make him feel like it was disloyalty, right? Uh, Allegiance to someone else other than him. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. Okay, so the king asked him some questions. How long are you going to be there? And he gave him some answers, and he allowed him to go. Okay. And here, when it says the queen sitting by him, um, this is likely the queen here is likely referring to the queen mother, um, who is by the king. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. So, more than that, more than just the leave of absence he wanted, he's saying also give me letters right? What would the letters allow him to do? Hmm? Make it there safely? Because because he, he, otherwise he wouldn't be allowed to travel. So everywhere he's going to be traveling is in the Persian Empire, right? So he needed like permission. He needed letters from the king in order to facilitate him being able to travel um, freely in the kingdom, okay? And when he says here, given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river. What river is he talking about? Hm yeah, so do you know they're called which one? Yeah, the Euphrates, yeah. The Euphrates River. Um so the beyond the river because essentially like it's like kind of like the border of Iran. Um once you cross that, right, then you're getting into like um you know toward the direction of Israel. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of, of my God upon me. So if you see here from the very beginning, when Nehemiah is, like, making all of these requests, you, you see that he's given this a lot of thought. Like, it wasn't just, like you know, God, please, I, I, I want to be the one to go do it. And he's very passionate about it. And the king says, okay. And then he just like immediately leaves. Like he's been thinking about this for a long time. It's like, well, what are we going to need to realistically build the wall? And he's, he's saying, I even need timber to make beams, right? For the o- my own house that I will occupy. So he's not just thinking about like the needs of the city, but he's saying, I need to also live there, right? So I have to be able to build a house for myself. Right. So everything like he's very resourceful and he's planning ahead. Okay. Um, which is again, th- one of Nehemiah's strengths. This is why like the character of Nehemiah is always studied when it comes in the context of leadership um, and planning because he, 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 he didn't just, he didn't just operate on passion only. You know, like some people are very passionate, like they feel very strongly about something, but they have no idea how to do it. They are just very excited about it, you know, like, they, they, they really want to do it. And maybe the ideas they come up with are very impractical. Like, sometimes people want to achieve, like, a certain thing. But they have no real plan to do it. They, they, everything, they're, they're just all fanciful thinking and, fa- you know, like, like fantasy-type thinking about how things are going to come together magically. It's like, you know, yeah, because God is going to make it. Okay, God is going to make it. But God is going to make it because we also have to think, like, how God is going to make it. Here, Nehemiah obviously is trusting in God to do this. But that didn't keep him from thinking through all the steps of everything that would have had to happen. How am I going to get there? Oh, I need letters of recommendation. Well, what are the resources that we need? Oh, we need the timber. Where am I going to get the timber? Oh, we'll get them from this forest. This is most likely the forest of Lebanon, which had, like, famous for their cedar trees. And this was also under Persian rule at the time. Um, so he needed the resources. Like, Where am I going to live? Oh, well, we need enough wood so that I can live too, Right? Oh, and, and, and who's going to do the work? Well, he's going to take people with him as well, right? So all of these steps, he thought about them ahead of time. It wasn't just prayer only. It was prayer and thinking, okay? Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me, right? So this is the group of people who are going to, like they're like the, the coming to protect Nehemiah as he is traveling. Okay, when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Okay, so who are these people? Sanballat, he was the governor of Samaria. So remember where Samaria? North of Judah, right? Samaria is one of the places, it was it was the, the capital of the kingdom of Israel, and after the Assyrian exile, uh they the 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 Assyrians brought the foreign people to go and dwell there to intermix with the people and that was uh close to 300 years before this maybe a little less than 300 years before this okay so there had been a lot of time now for the Samaritans right which are now like the kind of what we consider more like the Samaritans that we find in the New Testament, which are like an intermixing of the Jews and the, the non Jews, right? To be there. And, and politically, like they are ov- they're going to be more powerful than Israel or, or Judah or Jerusalem or whatever remnant of the Jews there are left there. Okay? And Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. Okay? Do you have a question? No. Tobiah uh, is believed to be the governor of Ammon. So the Ammonites were across the Jordan River, right? But they also didn't want there to be uh, more political power given to Judah at the time, okay? So there were several reasons that they they might be um, opposing Nehemiah from the beginning. Just the idea that someone is going to come and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem was concerning to them. First reason, Nehemiah is disobeying the previous decree of the king you remember, as we said, in Ezra chapter 4, the previous group of Jews, they tried to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And at the time, the, pe- the local people there told the king and the king told them to stop. So could be, they're like, well, the king already said you can't do this. Okay? Second, um, it would make Jerusalem more politically powerful in the region because once the city is walled in, they would have more protection and it would allow them to thrive and prosper more. Three... The city would be less accessible for trade because now the Jewish people can control who enters and leaves the city. Okay, Four, the temple would be less accessible. So anyone who wanted access to the temple, when there's no walls, they can go to the temple. Right Now there would be, again, more control over that. Five, maybe jealousy toward Nehemiah because he is coming now with authority from the king himself, Right, letters from the king. And then six, maybe... This man Sanballat he had aspirations to increase his influence to eventually become governor of Judah as well, right? He's resisting this idea that that Israel is going to become this independent, powerful uh, nation. So I came to Jerusalem, and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what what God what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. So he came for three days, okay, and he stayed quiet, right? He stayed quiet. He didn't say, he didn't come in for three days and be like making this all this fanfare. It's like, hey, I'm the one coming from the king. I'm the one who has letters from the king. I'm going to come and build everything. Like he was very subtle in the way that he did things, okay? Then he wants to survey the wall, right? He wants to know what is it that has to be done, like to understand the problem. This is, again, something we learn from Nehemiah. When there's a big project that has to be done, what is the problem exactly? And what is it that we're trying to solve? And what are the resources needed to solve it? Even when Christ is speaking about discipleship, and he says, you know, when you're going to build a tower, right, you don't first start building the tower without first knowing whether you have the resources you need to build the tower, because otherwise you're going to build the tower, and halfway through, you're going to run out of resources and everyone's going to mock you and say, ah, he started the tower, but he couldn't finish. Right? So again, the type of personality that was needed in order to do this was exactly what Nehemiah was, you know, maybe someone who was in charge of like the spiritual reform like Ezra didn't need to have this type of mind or or way of, of solving problems because his focus was on something else. He was focusing on the spiritual needs of the people, which required a different set of skills. Right? But here, nehemiah's job was to was an engineering project okay but it was an engineering project that required him also to be able to inspire people and that's what made him more than just an engineer like he wasn't just a person who knew how to build you know he was a person that knew how to inspire people to build right which was something different so he's here and he does it at night why he's doing it at night because he doesn't want anyone to be aware of what he's doing he knows that there are going to be enemies and, uh, and opposers to what he's doing. He doesn't want to invite scrutiny to what he is doing. He already has permission from the king to do this, right? So he's everything he's doing is legal and lawful, even if the people there are um, opposing him, okay? So at night, he's going around and he is surveying. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which which were burned with fire. Okay. So um, he didn't go around the entire city but it was enough for him to view like what extent the the wall in the south was still intact. Okay. And Jerusalem had been a lot attacked from the north. Right. So so um, Uh, there were only like barely any remnants left of the wall in the north the serpent well that's mentioned here was it was called that because there was a statue of a serpent serpent with the water flowing from its mouth that was a a well that was known at the time it was called the serpent well the refuse gate is where the people used to throw the trash okay it's about two thousand cubits from the valley gate Um, that's why it's called the refuse gate Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. Okay, so the fountain gate got its name because it was the primary access to this fountain. The king's pool is the pool of Siloam, the pool of Siloam where the man born blind uh, washed. This is the king's pool that he's referring to. Okay, Um, and it was so ruined that there was no way for him to even pass um, uh, like there was no room for, for, for him to pass while he was riding on his animal. So it was in very bad shape. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Why do you think he had not told anyone? Commotion what kind of commotion opposition why opposition isn't he doing this for the sake of the Jewish people why would the Jews oppose this fear okay so they're like no if you start building this then people are going to attack us it's going to invite our enemies to come and to harass us okay so it could be fear what else they got comfortable with the way that things were. and They don't like change, right? We're, we're we're making do, right, with the way things are now. We don't want to change anything. Okay, what else? They're what? Oh, they're double agents. <laughs> well, it could be that they don't want to work. Like, each one of them is very busy with their own stuff. This isn't something that I'm interested in. And we're just happy that things are the way they are, and that's fine. Um, It could be that everyone is going to come up with their own ideas. Be like, oh, we should do it this way, Nehemiah. Um, Here's another way we should do it. And everyone's going to start arguing. it's like, no, no, no. This is the way. And, you know, the way Middle Eastern people are. (laughs) So so everyone's going to keep arguing about what is the right way. What did Nehemiah wanted to know? And because this was again Nehemiah's style of leadership, he wanted to understand the problem. And then he wanted to give a vision of how it was going to be done and a way to get everybody on board with it. Right? Remember, Nehemiah is, he has no established relationship with any of these people. He's not a friend of them. He hasn't ever done anything to help them. Like, he's a stranger to them. So he has to come and make them feel like he cares about them he cares about this project, and that they should care about the project, and here's why, and this is how we're gonna do it, and it's gonna be successful, and they have to trust that his plan is gonna be successful. And that's like what the leader is supposed to do. Like, it's good for the leader to get ideas. Like, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think? But in the end, the decision has to be made, and sometimes, and a lot of the time, it can't be done democratically, right? Because everyone's gonna come with their own idea, and then people just start quarreling and nothing gets done in the end because everyone has their own idea. The purpose of the leader is to absorb all the good ideas from everybody and be like, okay, this is how we're gonna do it, okay? So he is researching the problem first so that when he has this conversation with them and people will be like, well, but did you see the refuse gate? Because it was such and such and this and that. It's like, yeah, I already saw it. This is how we're gonna do it, right? So he knows exactly, he needs to understand the problem better than all of them so that when the people come to him with complaints, and with opposition, he has an answer already, and his plan already includes like all of this. And it's practical, and it's doable. It's something they can achieve. Okay? This is, again, why Nehemiah is like such a good example for leadership. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that will be no longer be a reproach, so he began to explain now, having studied the problem, he began to explain now, like to the, to the people, what he intended to do. And he is now trying to sell them on the vision, okay? And his way of selling them on the vision was to appeal to what they would be feeling. Like he's saying, we are a reproach, right? Like he, he's even saying, we. It's like, who are you, Nehemiah? You just showed up two days ago, and now you're saying, we? Like, yeah, we are a reproach. Like, I am one of you. I am a Jewish person like you. I have a passion about this just like you. I am a worshiper of God just like you. We are a reproach because the walls are this way. And he's trying to get them on board with this vision of you need to do this, not because I'm commanding you to do it. It's not like, you know what, um, I have a letter from the king, and he told me that I am going to come here and I'm going to build the wall, and you got to just do whatever I say. Like He didn't do that. Like maybe that would not have been an effective way of getting the people on board with his plan right they would be like who are you like you just showed up yesterday why should we listen to you but instead he is appealing to what is to their own best interest right which is we no longer want to be a reproach his vision is like we can restore Israel to the glory days right that's what he's saying. he's saying we should not be satisfied with anything less than what we had before the exile happened which you can imagine people who are living in these kind of conditions for so long, for them, that's like a pie in the sky kind of idea. It's like, no, I mean, our, our, our society has been devastated, right? Like, how are you expecting us to be back again to the way that things were, and we don't have the resources, and you know, when people don't wanna do something, they'll come up with a thousand reasons why it can't be done. So here he is appealing to them and making them to be on board with this vision that he has. Yes. Is the microphone on?
2: Hello. Okay. Um, like I understand the whole leadership part of this, but kinda going back. Um, and if we were to apply this to us, like something you said, like which was, you know, we hear all this bad news but we don't really feel called to do anything. Um so my question is like who are, who's our people? Right? Is this like a religious identity? Is this a cultural identity? Is this like a territorial identity because Jerusalem and Judah mean something for this and is it just because that is the place or is it because of a faith and then in that like okay we're going to go and help you know, the answer to the first one, whatever group we identify with, right? But in this, you're saying he's he's kind of appealing to this feeling that they have, right? But that kind of goes against why he didn't say anything immediately, right? Like, if they're opposed to this, if they're going to, like, maybe they don't have that feeling. And is it, I don't know, I always hear this thing of, like, when you do mission work, especially, like, the savior complex, like, we're going to go tell them what they should want, right? And we're going to go fix their problems, right? And s- is that not something that should come from the people to say, hey, we want a wall and maybe we're terrible at doing it? Help, right? Those are two questions.
0: Just two? Yep. Okay. There may yeah. be a follow up. I'll try to remember all the many questions. The first thing you said, like, what type of group, she I guess, like, is it, is it, uh, is it, how does he identify with them as? territory or religious or uh, in this case like israel is unique in the sense that it's all of the all of all of that like it is religious obviously but god had given a specific land to them so it was also political right so in doing this they are establishing israel not only in the religious practice but also as a political nation right and a form of government that would be necessary for them to be successful and to protect the religious worship. I mean, the religious worship is the core of it, but everything else that's around it is there to facilitate the religious worship. Like, for instance, in the church, the purpose of the church is spiritual, right? But not everything in the church is is spiritual, but it's there to facilitate the spiritual. Like, So, for instance, we have like systems in place that allow the Sunday school servants to... Um, you know submit lessons and tell us when they're going to be absent and what's that like I can't say that that's spiritual you know like spreadsheets are not spiritual um, but it facilitates the spiritual right it's there to make the spiritual aspects of the church work better right so here even though the t- building the wall is not a spiritual activity but it is it is he is appealing to the sp- the spiritual nature of the relationship between the people and God. like Everything about the Jewish people is all about they identify themselves as being the children of God. So everything that allows that relationship to thrive is spiritual, directly or indirectly. So what he is doing is he is allowing the nation of God, established by God, the place where he sent the prophets, the place where the Messiah is going to be born, to thrive. That is his work. So even though, again, he is not a priest and he is not, like, spiritual in the sense of he's not giving sermons, he's not a prophet, he's not doing those things, but his work is facilitating. It would be like the same thing as, you know, like the board of the church, right? Like the board of the church, they make a lot of decisions that have nothing to do with spiritual directly, but they facilitate the functioning of the church, which is allows the people to come. Like an example of maybe touching on the second question, right, is how do you convince those people? Like... like there are many times, for instance, where, like I remember when, um, when Houston only had one church, right, St. Mark Church. And at the time, it had been St. Mark Church since the 70s. Like, so you imagine from the 70s until the 90s. So for 20 years, there had only been one church in Houston. Then somebody floated the idea, it's like, well, what if we make a second church? Like in Cyprus. Okay. So you can imagine that the responses or the reactions to the people were varied. Like, some people were completely against it. It's like, no, we're going to divide the congregation, and this isn't good, and, you know, like, we are like have very bad, you know, reaction to it. Other people like the idea, right? So to sell the vision is to say what? No, actually, we have so many people now, which is a good thing, that we are need to expand the church to have churches all over the city. Like, so, for instance, when, when Amba Yusuf came, that was his vision. His vision is, you know, when he, when he came as bishop, like, I don't know how many churches there were, there was a handful of churches in the diocese right and now there's like you know over 60 churches or something like that so so the 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 idea was like his vision was let's keep expanding and building churches everywhere right whereas many many people's initial thought is no we don't want to split the churches we want people to stay together you know and so on so he's coming in order to sell the idea he's selling a vision the vision is no like we want to, to have churches everywhere so that no matter where you live, you're always within 20 minutes of a church. That's the vision. So y- it's not that you're telling people what they should believe, but you're opening their eyes to possibilities that might never have considered right? So here, maybe these people never considered the possibility of returning back to the glory days, of returning back to how things were, where yes, we had a wall, and we had a temple, and God was dwelling with us, and we were the people of God, and God granted us victory over our enemies. Like, these people are defeated people. They're defeated. Like, Nehemiah is coming with the mindset, "is like, we don't have to live as defeated people anymore. We can live as victorious people, and that is what the wall represents to him. It's It's not just a wall. It's representation of the power of God in Israel.
2: Can I do a follow-up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Back to the first one. Second one, thank you. First one like but for us we don't have that. We don't have this trifecta of an identity where all of us are from the same land and same culture and same everything and history like I don't share history of my people with Carol Right. Like we have very two different ancestral histories. Right. If you talk about like the land and even even when you go into like specific traditions of the church. Right. Like there's different histories of persecution and different histories of everything. So who are our people? Well, is our people everyone? Because we are here to redeem everyone. Not I mean, we're not here to redeem, but you know what I'm saying?
0: So I don't want you to look at this so narrowly as being about this story is about saving him saving a certain group of people. Think about it as God is calling you to do something, right? Maybe the calling is not even about a group. Maybe it's for your family, mm. right? Maybe the, the calling is for your group of friends. Maybe the calling is for a specific church. You know, like I know some people that, for instance, they prefer to attend this church over here, but for the sake of the need that's in one church, they will leave this church and go attend this church. So in that case, that need that they're called to do, that they feel passionate about, is the need for just a specific congregation. It's not even about a whole nation or anything. So I wouldn't look at it as being like we have to figure out where to draw the boundary lines, right? Because this isn't about any specific boundaries. This is this is uh, about when a person feels called by God to do something. In this case, it was... Yeah, on the lines of, like, ethnicity, religion, whatnot. But it's not always like that. Right. right. So then he goes on. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So, So not only did he present them the plan, he said, here is the evidence that I have that God is present with us, and God is the one who is going to grant us success in this. So he's like, don't just trust me. Don't just believe my words. But let me tell you my story, right? Why should you believe me? You know, what? what is it about me specifically that you should trust? And see how God is already started working to grant us success. So their place, he's, he's emphasizing the faith in God. He's also sharing them something about himself. When he says, um, uh, I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me. Like, right, like when you can make a personal connection with people, they are more likely to follow you. And when you you can speak about the work of God in your life, they are more likely to follow you. And when you make them feel that God is supporting the project that we are going to work on, they again, they are more likely to follow you. So he's inspired them, right, by presenting a vision, by having a a logical plan, by having evidence of divine providence, right, and projecting confidence and hope, all those things to allow him to be successful in being a leader. Again, his job here is not to do the building, right? He is just one man. His job is to inspire a group of strangers that are downtrodden and defeated in order to build, which is a very different thing. And then he goes on, or so so then it says, so they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. So you see their reaction to everything that Nehemiah had presented to them is let us rise up and build. Like they felt motivated and confident and inspired by all that he has done and not all that he has said to them, but his own sacrifice. Like he said, I traveled thousands of miles. I was the cupbearer of the king. I came here specifically for you because I wanted to build the walls of Jerusalem. Like everything about this was was very inspiring. And that's why anytime you see like any church that wants to collect donations for building a church, they say, let us rise up and build, okay? But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Abonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So Geshem, this is, this is the first time he's mentioned, he was like ruler of the Arabs who lived across the Jordan in the region of Edom. That's who he was. So he was like another governor of the Arabs in the region. So all these three powerful people, you know, political reed- leaders in the, in the region, they tried to intimidate them to stop right? And their, 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 their intimidation is here through like mockery. They're laughing at them, despising them. And they saying um, not only that, but are you going to rebel against the king? Don't you remember before when the king said, you're not allowed to continue building the wall, right? And so they're trying to intimidate them to stop. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us therefore we his servants will arise and build but you have no heritage or right in memorial in jerusalem right so again jerusalem was the city of god and god was the king right it was a city of god so he's saying these other nations they have no right they have no place they have like nothing that they say there is no intimidation right because in the end god is the one who is going to prosper us so you know if god is for us who can be against us and we are not taking your opinion. We are not asking for your permission. Notice here Nehemiah's response was not like, here, let me show you the letters that I got from the king and he told me that I'm able to build. He didn't say that. He said, no, the God of heaven himself will prosper us, right? So he considered that everything that was happening to be from God, not from man. It wasn't, it wasn't that the king of Persia sent me on this mission and so I have right to build. No, it was this city, Belongs to God is the city of God and God is the one who's going to grant us the permission to build and grant us the ability to build Not Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes doesn't even know the significance of what we are doing. He granted me permission to come But that doesn't mean that he Shares this vision or this passion or the understanding of why this is so important So it is the God of heaven himself. So you see like Nehemiah was a very very faithful person It wasn't that he was uh, a teacher or a preacher or 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 a priest or a prophet, but everything that he did in his life and one of the reasons he was so successful is was because of his faith and that was expressed through his abilities and the talents that he had, which was you know to be very logical, very resourceful planning and being a good leader okay any final questions before we stop yeah
1: okay, I'm thinking out loud so it's not really formulated but okay so when he was when he says this answer what he's what he's implying by what 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 you just said is that it is because god allowed him to go that artaxerxes gave him permission so the permission actually came from god in his eyes if god if artaxerxes had said no that's god saying no right that's god not saying not yet or not now right that's how he's viewing things or else he wouldn't have said okay look at how god gave me all these like when he was inspiring the people right he said god look at what god has done for me right so he's viewing the the permission of artaxerxes as as god's blessing of the plan but then later when they were when they opposed him right the the ammonite and the and all the arab right he he looked at that and said no that's not you guys are like part of the enemy right like you're not so how do we discern what is an obstacle from god as god saying no not yet versus an obstacle that is uh, that is like from the enemy trying to hinder god's work
0: So that's a good question. Um, For Nehemiah, the the motivation that he had in order to return was not simply the king saying, okay, but it was many factors. Like it was the way that he felt when he was told that the walls were in shambles. It was the zeal that he had in his prayer and feeling peace in his heart about this plan. As I said, it's not. It's very likely that at the very beginning he did not consider himself to even be part of the plan, you know, because he wasn't pray. He, he wasn't praying, God, please send me back to Jerusalem to lead this effort. He was just praying that God fixes the problem, right? But over time he began to feel that, like a conviction, that maybe God is calling me to do this. How am I going to know? Well, let me ask the king and see what happens. And then at that point, everything started to fall into place. The king said yes, then he granted him the letters of permission, then he granted him the resources, he granted him horsemen and people to escort him. And so you, you start to see like the fingerprints of God working and many factors in giving confidence that God has a certain goal in mind. But as once you embark on, the, on this, and you're saying, okay, I believe that this is God's plan. I believe this is what God wants. But that doesn't mean that everything's going to go the way that I expect, right? So the moment then that you have confidence and faith in yourself that something is God wants it to be accomplished, but you don't necessarily know how it will be accomplished. You don't know how long it's going to take to be accomplished. You don't know um, maybe things aren't going to go the way that I expected it to go, right? And certainly we see that in many ways. Like any any worthwhile thing that, you know, even the apostles, like St. Paul, for instance, like, we say, okay, he established all these churches and he did all these things, but look at the kind of obstacles that he had. He was stoned and he was shipwrecked and he was, you know, harmed in many ways. People tr- mistreated him in many ways. But even people from the church rejected him, and like in so many ways, there was resistance, right? But he knew that he was called to be an apostle. And he knew that this was his mission, and so regardless of what he experienced, he didn't, um, like, he didn't shy away from that. So in this case, Nehemiah was very convicted for several reasons. It wasn't just The king saying yes. It it wasn't just something that maybe Nehemiah could have second guessed later and thought to himself, you know what, maybe I should have never come. Maybe this really wasn't God's will from the beginning. And the fact that he experienced resistance is something expected. You know, we we should expect resistance in many ways in any good thing that we do. We even have resistance, even in our own spiritual struggle. Like, you know, when you start to struggle spiritually, what happens? The devil tempts us more, right? Like, Like, we don't say, well, because the devil is tempting me that means I shouldn't continue. No, actually, maybe the opposite. Maybe because I'm being tempted, that means that I need to continue and that the sign of of the temptation is actually a sign that I'm doing right and I'm doing good, right? Because otherwise, the devil wouldn't care about what I was doing, right? So so we have to, like, I, I, I definitely see where you're coming from and trying to interpret, like, when is it the time to say, okay, this isn't God's will, right? But I think in, in this case, in Nehemiah, um, it was clear that this was God's will. Like maybe a, cont- a counter example would be like King David. King David wanted to build a temple, right? Um, and he had even started to make plans of how the temple would be built. And God came to him very clearly and said, no, you're not going to build a temple. The temple will be built and, you know, King Solomon will build the temple. Um, so, so even if we have something good that we want to do with good intention and we pray about it, then God can make it clear to us maybe from the beginning that this isn't really his will for us or it's something that is impossible. The other way that we could tell that this was something that was possible for Nehemiah is because all the resources became available, right? Like, again, Nehemiah was a very practical person. Like, let's say he has a passion for it, but I have no resources. I have no way for me to build anything. Maybe with Nehemiah's way of thinking, he would have thought to himself, okay, well, I can't do it. Um, Maybe I don't have the resources to do it. So again, like God has a way of communicating to us, like, this is what I want you to go. This is the path I want you to go. Even if there's resistance, doesn't mean that it's not His will. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Okay. Can pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing and we ask that you help us to learn the example and the the model of Nehemiah and how he was very faithful to you, how he felt convicted to do something that was good and he trusted in you and sought, out, sought from you the means and the way to facilitate for him this project that he undertook. We thank you, O God, because you teach us how to be patient and to wait in prayer and fasting, to wait upon you to reveal to us your will and how you allow us to see the signs that you work, O Lord, by your hand in our life to lead us, O God, from where we are to where you want us to go. Help us to be faithful and help us, O Lord, to work even in the midst of opposition and distractions and obstacles and not to feel that we are defeated, but instead to trust in you and to know that you can always grant us victory. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, here says we pray, thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power and the glory forever and ever, amen. The love of God, the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior, jesus christ the community the gift of the holy spirit be with you all go in peace the peace of the lord be with you all amen
1: and also with your spirit